Hey out there in podcast land, this is episode four of Exit the Stage Door. It's Gwydion Sullivan. Oh, guys, this was so much fun. Uh, it was great to nerd out with Gwydion. He was so kind as well because uh, he was suffering from a cold while we recorded this episode. Uh, he was on the day quill. And so there's some coughing. I, I did my absolute best to make sure the coughing doesn't uh, totally ruin your ears or your car speakers or however you listen to this. Uh, but give the man a break. He was he was feeling a bit under the weather when we recorded it. Uh, he still sounds great, though. Um, and it was a fantastic conversation. We talked about all kinds of things. We talked about languages. We talked about the nature of communication. We talked about Bono, which was super cool. What a great story. <laughs> we talked about the welders. Uh how he finally felt like he could move forward on that. It would just just absolutely great stuff. I'm so excited that we had this conversation, and I'm very excited to be bringing it to you. Um, if you want to support The Welders, their latest production of Not Enough Lifetimes, which is sort of a hip-hop, uh, an exploration of hip-hop and uh, intersectional cultures. It's, perf- it's at the uh, Atlas Performing Arts Center. That's playing now. Um, there's a Welders 2.0 information session after the November 10th version. Um, you can find all of this information at welders.org and uh, Sullivan.com. I'll leave all that spelling to the links uh, in the show notes so you don't have to try to figure out um, Gwydion's last name, which is delightfully, I don't know, uh, yeah, <laughs> it's it's a challenge, and uh, I put it in the link so you don't have to work out that puzzle. Thanks for sticking with us. I'm so glad that you're still here, still listening to us. Um, ugh, this, this adventure continues. I've got a couple of great interviews lined up already for November, and uh, one or two other special guests I'm hoping to to book things are moving forward guys it's it's such a great time to be doing a podcast and this is a great continuation of the converse series of conversations that we've already had it's Gwydion and sullivan on episode four of exit the stage door here you go definitely good there. what happened with the volume on danielle's oh those were different microphones I, I I started cheap and it's like okay fifty bucks I'll get started and then I I listened to the listened to them and I realized that I had just turned I just cranked the monitor all the way up and so it sounded good in my head and then there wasn't enough room for gain later mm. it's I start, I literally started picking up the sirens in the streets behind me through the walls wow but I had to turn the gain so much to, <clears throat> to hear it in like a car or wherever which is where I normally listen to podcasts right right. I was like, oh no, we gotta, I gotta get a better mic. You, you, you did. We did. We went with some, some, these are condenser mics. So you get, throw the phantom power on, then you can, then you can add some power at the front, add some power again later and gain. And so far they've sounded really good. Awesome. Patrick, of course, has a wonderful voice. So yeah. that worked really well. Yeah. And uh, I, so Liz's interview we did actually on stage at the Landsberg. Mm. Um, in front of an audience? No, no, no. That's I've I have Danielle and Patrick have both sworn sworn me to putting them in the first live version of this. I do actually think that the new I mean the new TED model that the mm-hmm. TED founder has mm-hmm. embraced conversations. I think this is the way to to be surprising now. It will it itself will get boring, but um, putting two disparate people together who are good conversationalists and mm. not shy and yeah. willing to expound and you know 
talk about things they're not necessarily experts about but curious about mm, yeah that I think is going to lead to really entertaining exciting surprising dialogue that people are going to care about definitely I, that's that's podcasting's appeal to me in a nutshell yeah and it's I what I love about about it is the the interview style the fact that they are conversations it's not it's not like talk radio where someone is expounding or talking for three hours or whatever but that there's there's this sense that these two people don't know each other and are sort of feeling each other out and the dynamic of listening to that and this overarching theme that binds them together yeah and that they might that they're not there to plug anything right so they might say something surprising and off script yeah exactly yeah yeah and uh yeah chris hardwick has perfected that um he gets people get people are made available to him because of marketing campaigns because like oh you need to plug the movie and he lets he get he just crams that all in at the end and he's like no but I really want to sit down with you for an hour yeah. and we can talk about whatever and yeah it's because of the movie and we'll talk about the movie at the end or whatever but yeah it's that's just the anast to borrow the German word which I have I don't know if I'm borrowing so much as occasionally failing to get the English word I'm like I know this one but not <laughs> not in English not right now <laughs> my wife is fluent in French and mm. she um will often find le mot juste in the language wrong. <laughs> <coughs> <laughs> uh. That's awesome. Yeah, it's such an interesting experience. Like, knowing a language that well, it, changes, it definitely changes the way that you think and the way that you work with words. Yeah, I wish I knew another language that well. I mean, my German is so poor and my Spanish is even poorer. <laughs> and I used to be pretty pretty good Hebrew speaker when I was mm, a kid but mm-hmm. that I mean pretty good for a, a third grader or fourth grader yeah yeah but it's all gone I've just given myself over wholeheartedly to English mm, yeah and, and that's a that's what makes guys like Stoppard so fascinating like, that's how ridiculous how the hell is that bastard doing <laughs> that's I mean, it's ridiculous it's ridiculous yeah come on oh my gosh native Czech speaker yeah. does all that stuff in English like and so early I mean relatively early because he was in mid he was like 27 or whatever when he wrote uh, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern yeah older than people think but still young enough to be like come on now that's just ridiculous you know I come from multilingual stock Mm -hmm. my grandfather who was born in Poland speaking Polish and Yiddish and Hebrew because he was Jewish uh, moved to Austria and because he was there learned German then came to America and learned English because he was a student of classics, he learned Latin and Greek. Because his brother learned Portuguese, he couldn't be one language behind his brother. <laughs> he learned a smattering of that too. And so he was fluent in all of those languages. Yeah, and amazing. it was a, you know, a, a model to look at and also be massively intimidated by. <laughs> yeah, yes, there's, yeah. there's certainly that. But they, my, that's Burns, uh, not Burns, Two thoughts occurred to me as a result of that. One is the book that I'm reading right now that is The Night Train to Lisbon, which is about a classics teacher at a gymnasium in mm-hmm. Switzerland who mm-hmm. like all of a sudden has this revelation about meaning in his life when he meets a woman who is crying in the rain and she turns out to be Portuguese. She's trying to kill herself on a bridge and he stops her by having a conversation with her and then all of a sudden the next day he just takes a, takes a train to Lisbon and like completely loses his other life. I'm very. It's very early on. I'm only like a hundred pages in, but mm. like, hearing all of those things spoken aloud, yeah. that was hilarious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, that was very cool. But the other thing is, um, speaking of languages, the 
and I tell this to my cousin and my sister and I, my sister is, teaches Spanish professionally. Mm-hmm. She's an adjunct professor. Um, she's not so much in, she, she likes, uh, what's her name? Isabel Allende. Um, but she's not so much for the study of literature. She, she is primarily in a language instructor, though she loves Spanish. And we talk about this all the time with the people who are learning that the hardest language to learn is your second especially after you're a kid like because the way that you learn when you're in third grade has nothing to do with the way that you learn when you're in 10th grade or especially when you're in college yeah and learning about the structure of language when your brain didn't have to think about it beforehand that's the part that really sucks you know i think i i personally learn uh immersively mm-hmm. so we were on our honeymoon in italy and i learned three phrases of Italian before I went there and picked up enough by the three weeks we were there that I was fine mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. with all the ordinary tasks, you know, ordering food and right. where's the hotel and that sort of thing. Um, my wife, who's absolutely fluent in French and has spoken French for a decade and a half, uh, wouldn't do it, couldn't do it because she had such high standards Oh yeah. for for uh, fluency mm-hmm. that she just couldn't bear to get it wrong yeah. but my German has always been first of all I learned the Hochdeutsch because my grandparents spoke that and then I'm in college and I'm learning regular German and then I become a poet and I'm learning diese Tage die Leer der Scheinen und wertlos für das alle haben Wurzeln zwischen den Steinen und trinken dort überall and I and, I, and I'm this is a poetic German that's right it's radically different mm. and so I don't know what the right German is. I'm just like, <laughs> give me a word that's close enough to what I want. And whoever I'm communicating to will figure it out. Communication is always imperfect. Right. Oh, yeah. It's yeah. always imperfect. So get close enough and, the, and gravity will carry you the rest of the way there. Yeah. It's, uh, my first introduction to intellectual study um, and to my master's degree was actually in like postmodern perceptions and conceptions of irony as because which they always filtered through the German romantics and one of the things that I I feel like Derrida and other these people like this like have impossibly high standards of what communication should be and that, yes that leads to their sort of nihilism about language is yes. impossible but yeah so that's it's, exactly it's, it kills me this is why I left academia because because these are impossibly high standards they're not human yeah they're not human they're 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 robotic or ideal or fascist somehow like I could never live up to that standard and I didn't want to you know communication is is so much more practical for me mm-hmm. it's so much more um, I have a really big toolkit now in English mm-hmm. because it, I want to be able to express the widest possible range of ideas and feelings this is why we all need to be fluent and literate it's not to get it right it's not to use the apostrophe in the right place. It's so that we can have bigger and different and more nuanced and more complex thoughts. Yeah, I think that's a good. I mean, we've 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 gone a good while in, before, and I haven't actually said your name aloud yet. Uh, oh yeah, that. Which is a little uh, test that I love the description <laughs> you have on your website. Uh, so we're, I'm talking to Gwydion Sullivan. Yes, well done. That's only because of your instruction. That's great. Uh, yeah. You should check out his website. It's fantastic. And there's just so many reasons to be talking to you. Um, uh, The one I think 
I mean, there's just there's a bunch of them. The welders is such a great idea. I think we should probably end up at some point talking about like the motivation behind it because we're about you're about to go into 2.0 and this transition. Yeah. So the pretty well, key to the idea. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a it's a movement now. It's officially mm-hmm. a movement. There was the first wave of playwrights collectives, which was sort of the 13P wave, the 13P generation, uh, the neo-futurist, the workhouse collective in Minneapolis. And uh, they were so inspiring and they became sort of part of the conversation that happened, at least in the circles I moved in, not only um, here in DC, but especially here in DC and and nationwide. People would ask me, why don't you do a welder, uh, a 13P for DC? <clears throat> and I always said because I don't know why I don't know what my take on it would be I don't know yet I mean I know mm-hmm. I could but I don't I don't have a, a a vision for it that would be my own personal one and and by the way I was having conversations about this with you know practically everyone who's now a welder mm-hmm. uh, we were all just talking and chit chatting and then uh, there was this one epic email string. And I know that's so antiquated, but it was just one of these deals where I sent an email to um, Ali Curran mm-hmm. and Renee Calarco and said, you know what, this thing we've all talked about, I'm ready to do it, and, and here's why. Here's the difference. I want to do it and then give it away. Mm-hmm. And um, and it was it became like literally a four-hour string of emails We until two in the morning. <laughs> We emailed each each other back and forth. Our Gmail threads were ridiculous, passing through the night. Like, just, it was nonstop. It's the kind of thing you would reasonably get on Google Hangout now to do. Right. Which is, and our welder meetings are every other one is a Google Hangout. Um, <clears throat> but we didn't. Because <clears throat> I don't know if Hangouts existed yet. Um, <laughs> they were They were, I mean, yeah. So we, um, you know, it, so that became our thing like we can't we didn't none of us wanted to do it if it were just a way to get our plays in front of the world Mm -hmm. because we all we're getting our plays in front of the world we are really driven by um one of our board members says the reason i decided to be a board member is because you all are going big on generosity Mm. and that's really what we're about like yeah we're getting a production out of it But we're building this massive infrastructure, and the work involved is intense. Mm -hmm. Setting up a MailChimp account, building a website, building a donor base, having spreadsheets for things, checking accounts. I created our Network for Good profile the other day. Just so much stuff Mm -hmm. that we're putting in place that we're not going to benefit, that will benefit the next generation of Mm -hmm. welders. So... Uh, now is the time where we're soliciting that next generation. We're you know we're about to open our second production, Not oh, Enough Lifetime. Oh yeah, yeah. By Kellyanne Jennings, which is a absolutely heartbreaking, um, beautiful, well acted, well directed, I think, um, piece. Um, and at the same time, we're going through the process of figuring out who we're going to give this thing to, mm-hmm. and you know. I don't even know how it's going to work quite. I mean, I, I know the process we've set out. We I have asked people to get together in teams mm-hmm. and apply in t- 
teams. And the reason there is that we got to be a team and work in secret for a year before we launched to the public. Mm -hmm. So we formed our, you know, our, our group collective mentality. We learned how to get along. We learned how to fight, which is actually a really important mm -hmm. stage in any friendship. Um, we learned how to love each other. And we do. I'm not using that word lightly or uh, preciously or anything. I love the other five welders. We love each other. and it. But it took time to get to that. Mm. And so we wanted to give the next group um, two things. The time to do that, which is so we're trying to bring them in a year before mm -hmm. we're done. And also um, give them the opportunity to have made the choice that we got to make the choice to work with each other. Mm -hmm. um, if we had said, we'll just take individual applications and pick six people to give the group to, well, what if those six don't have the magic, don't get along, don't, you know? So we're trying it this way. Our deadline for applications is about a month and a half away, and I hope we get some. <laughs> <laughs> I really do. I don't know what we'll do if we don't. We'll that figure one, it out. Yeah, that but, would you know. be interesting too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, there's a meeting about that in the, after one of the productions of Not Enough Lifetime. Yeah, we've like, been holding sessions. Mm -hmm. Like we had a a, a session at uh, Page to Stage where we just sort of said, "All right, we're going to be there. You pick our brains about what it is to be a welder." And then we had a dedicated session at was it a Catholic? No, it was at um, GW mm -hmm. um, where we you know people showed up and. We sat in a circle and did a little kumbaya and uh, told them we were all hippies and they had to be hippies if they wanted to join. And then this this one is a little more like a mix and mingle, like mm -hmm. to help create the conditions by which applicants can meet each other. Yeah. It's a little bit of a, this is this really sticky thing. People have been asking us, how am I supposed to meet other people to do this with? And I, I just, I want to say, you just have to do it. Mm -hmm. You have to be gregarious. There's this, this whole movement now, and I'm sympathetic to it, to learn how to value and engage with introverts, right? Oh. And I don't, I don't want to be dismissive. I do know introverts who I love and cherish. But the theater rewards extroversion. <laughs> Being an artist rewards extroversion. You are only working against it. You're, you're working against yourself. You know, the more you can be a smart interlocutor for your own work, for your own self, for your own being, the more success you will have as an artist. And it's mm -hmm. not about success like getting opportunities and winning things. It's about making connections with other humans, which Absolutely. is what art should be doing. Mm -hmm. So... We want to help people meet each other, but we don't want to hold their hands. Because right, if they're right. not willing to have a few awkward damn conversations to meet other potential welders, then they're not really going to be able to carry the torch of the welders forward. They have to be willing to say, will you give me money? I believe oh, in yeah. this cause. Will you give me money? Uh, I'm producing this show of my friends, and I think it would actually make a difference for you if you saw this piece of art. Mm -hmm. You have to be able to say that over and over and over again for three years. So if you can't <coughs> say, hey, I'm thinking about a, wel a welder's team. Can we have coffee? 
then you're probably not a welder. Right. And that's, it's, it's, yeah. That's, I mean, I'm, that rings very true with me as I, as I sit across from an almost complete stranger who I've only interacted with online. Uh, the only way for me to be creatively engaged was not just to write my own plays by myself, which, I mean, wh- whatever. And it's not about me getting my plays produced. Like, I write because there is a need to do it. If I didn't do it, I would, like, crumble and die. Like, part of me would, would die. So regardless of whether that ever happens again. But, but to expand my world, it was necessary for me to take a bold step. And I'm an introvert. Like, it's... I love that I have a podcast. <laughs> but You're not an introvert. I don't believe it. Well, I used to be an introvert. Okay. And so at one point, I was, I, I like, cowered in the, in the room, and people were very kind and took my hand and encouraged me to speak. And then, like, the story goes with Bono. It's like Bono was the shy kid in the corner of the room, and then he opened his mouth, and he hasn't shut it since. Which is great because he's done great things. That's the only way that I, I was... met him once. <laughs> really? That's yeah. awesome. Oh man. Uh, how? Under what circumstances? Like nineteen eighty six or seven. Oh, good time too. Yeah, the Rosemont Horizon in Chicago. Luisa Triandis and I had a date. We got tickets to see them. Uh, we were dependent on a ride from Kanwar Singh who was going to come pick us up afterwards. These are the names that won't matter. <laughs> uh, to pick us up after the concert, we were students at Northwestern. Mm. And uh, we told Conwar we'd call him when the show was over to tell him to come get us. And we called Conwar when the show was over from the lobby of the Rosemont Horizon when the crowd was so loud because they were still singing, How long to sing this song? <laughs> That Conwar didn't hear us. He What he heard was me saying, we don't need a ride. We have a ride. And in fact, what I said is, we need our ride. Oh, no. So we spent an hour waiting for him, circling the outside of the Rosemont Horizon, <laughs> getting more and more scared that we would never get an hour back to campus or whatever it was, 45 minutes. And we noticed a cluster of people. We started uh, moving our way over toward them, and we didn't know what they were doing or why they were hanging out. And then all of a sudden, a door opens on the side of the Rosemont Horizon, and there, flanked by two massive security guards, is Bono. And the crowd of people we're with runs the, like 50 yards to him, and we're like, why are they running? We must run, too. And we realize <laughs> it's Bono they're running towards. So they pack around him this maybe, you know, two dozen at most people jam-packed around him. And Bono is literally surrounded by two 6'6", 350-pound guys who are not letting anyone get within two feet of him. <laughs> and first guy starts talking, Bono, blah, blah, blah. And it turns out they're from the same neighborhood in Dublin and they know similar people and it's a fun little reunion. And then the next person speaks up and says, Bono, your music's changing, Why? And there was a pause, and I could see Bono's face getting sad. So I said, I'm 18, mind you. Maybe 19. But it's changing for the better. And Bono turned, whips his head around, and stares at me, locks eyes with me, won't look away. He's boring holes into me, and I have no idea how to read the expression on his face. He waits like three seconds four seconds, 
five seconds and then he says amen friend and he walks away he does the drop the mic move and walks right away and that is it and I'm sitting there going back. <laughs> like I couldn't believe he talked to me it was, oh, it was one of my awesome. first um, you know brushes with fame in a way. And <laughs> that's incredible yeah I'll never forget it so what was your reaction 87 I mean the Love Town tour would have happened very shortly after that in 89 and then how did you react to Zoo Station and Octung Baby um it was all okay it just I mean after that era of YouTube, yeah. it was all it just started to feel a little samey and a little like a little hit oriented mm. a little you know, his music was changing and it was not for the better. <laughs> his music was definitely changing, yeah. which is why it's so interesting that they managed to nail that. That, they, is, that is a formative time for a complete shift in what, what they were doing. It's really true. It's really true. I mean, I will always love you too. They're, mm-hmm. In my life, they were the closest. They were in, the inheritors for me of the Beatles. Like They were mm-hmm. the next yeah. great pan-world uh, uh, mass appeal uh, foursome you know, or band. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I mean, they, they, they always hold a place in my heart for having done that mm-hmm. and achieved that. And I don't think anyone has come, you know, yeah. to that level in that category anyway. Yeah. Uh, you know, Shakira is probably more popular worldwide, but, um, uh, <laughs> That's probably true, yeah. uh, in any event, I think, uh, yeah, that was special. I ended up later in life doing a small bit of work to help, um, build the website the, the trailer website for um, the U2 3D yes. movie oh my gosh that was the best 3D movie I'd seen for a long time and we planted easter eggs in the site you could no enter kidding. a code and unlock footage that wasn't available you know, we did all kinds of things that were not yet in the common parlance yeah of, yeah of oh it was kind. so far ahead of its time it so was, far ahead of its time yeah I remember sitting in the audience for that and, and realizing that it wasn't a gimmick like the, three, the 3D nature of that somebody Somebody planned those shots in real depth. Like yeah. it was the sc- scale and distance and foreground versus background was very important to the director of that movie. It was not your father's 3D. No, that it was, was the yeah. first time when it was like, you know, uh, to me it was an- another kind of 3D. Yeah. Of course, now we have 4D and, <laughs> and it's, you know, 18D by the time my kid is old enough <laughs> to watch movies. Well, string theory will have reached its true apotheosis right. in 18D movies. Yeah, right. <laughs> So that touches on something that um, a common thread among people who make theater is that making theater isn't generally speaking the way that they make money. Do you have a day job, or it sounds like marketing? Or marketing might be—I I don't mean that negatively. <laughs> I know I know some people, some especially in theater, are like allergic to the concept. I'm very very hard to describe. I love it. I'm not. I'm not easy. Uh, I don't have a job where I am nine to five. Oh, okay. you're, you're sitting in my dining room. This is it, right? Um, I do a lot of different things mm. and uh, make, you know, earn my bread in a lot of different mm-hmm. ways. Um, I'm a commissioned playwright. I've just landed two big projects, um, neither of which have been announced to the world, but one involving a big theater here in the city and one involving a major arts festival in the region. Um, and um, so that is a bulk of what I do. Mm-hmm. I write, uh, do the occasional film project and mm-hmm. 
Um, I grew up with the internet. So the yeah. very first hard-coded HTML pages, um, I was writing HTML. I mm. was At the time, I was on the faculty of the Maryland Institute College of Art, and um, I was also working part-time in their communications office, and they said, can you get this newsletter onto the web? And I was like, oh, I mean, I'm young and smart, and I'll figure that out, and I did, right? And I had been doing freelance curriculum development for Sylvan oh. and Kaplan, mm -hmm. writing curricula, because I had a, I have a master's degree in poetry, and I was teaching poetry mm -hmm. and teaching fiction. And they said, can you figure out how to teach this stuff on the internet or with email or something? Just figure it out. We don't know. I hear it's the hot thing. I mean, you have to understand this is way early. <laughs> That's, yeah. Like... So when you get in on the ground floor of something like the internet, you become an expert just by having been in the field longer mm -hmm. than anyone mm -hmm. else. So I consulted part-time for about a dozen years with a major agency here in D.C., always part-time mm -hmm. so that I always had other things going, my own consulting work. Um, theatrical work um, and um, I'm now able to um, uh, not it's not even cobbled together I make my living in a million different ways right, I do yeah. a lot of uh, I consult for say Ford's theater on a big digital platform that's going to commemorate the 150th assassin uh, anniversary of um, yeah. Lincoln's assassination I'm working for an, a digital agency in town to help them rebrand their organization. I, you know, I'm a digital communications consultant um, when the need arises. Mm -hmm. and, and I am also unlike a lot of theater people in that I don't hate any of that. <laughs> I, I love it. For me, it is all communication. Yeah. Everything I do yeah. is storytelling. Everything I do is storytelling. Sometimes it's on stage. Sometimes it's on film. Sometimes it's um, on the little tiny screen that is your phone. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's on a, a laptop or a tablet. It's all about creating experiences and serving content in through those channels to engage audiences. Mm -hmm. And um, the, it's the same skill spun out 16 different ways. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah the, the, <laughs> I love it. every conversation that I've had has touched on some some reason that I wanted to start the podcast in the first place is because I had this same sense like because we, we talked a, a little bit earlier just before recording that one of the inspirations for my doing the podcast is that a theater Shakespeare theater produced a podcast but not and that I was dissatisfied because they didn't do it often enough because they didn't understand exactly that that engagement it's not marketing it's all content it's all a way of telling the stories and the story of your organization and the story of your community and the story of why you're doing the shows that you're doing as well as the show and the idea the animating principle behind the show and communicating that in different ways it's all that the, I, I firmly and completely believe that the theater companies of the future will consider themselves with all of their being, not just nominally, but really in, the, in their bones, content companies. Mm -hmm. Some of that content will appear on stage, maybe even most of it. But if they aren't also communicating via regular email communications, and not tickets are now on right. sale, but yeah. here is some inside information that will su support or supplant or supplement or something uh, the experience that you're going to have mm -hmm. uh, when you come to the theater. 
a podcast, video. You have everything you need. You have the infrastructure in an institution yeah. oh to, to tell transmedia stories, to tell stories in more than one channel. The fact that... And, and everyone in the world now has the expertise to do what you're sitting here doing, right? Mm -hmm. To make a podcast, to make a video. The sole expertise of a theater is to the ones that they have the monopoly on is how to tell stories on stage. So all they have to do is stretch a little into territory that everyone else can do, that a third grader can do with <laughs> iMovie and a, and a flip cam, a, a, an outdated flip cam. And they could be doing magical, wonderful things, but they allocate their budgets solely to the art on stage mm -hmm. instead of sort of broadening the way they think about themselves. Yeah. Now, I'm speaking with a broad brush. Sure, there yeah. are theaters that are much more savvy about this stuff, but I still haven't seen it done except by the explicitly transmedia theaters right. that are yeah. really here to do this. But it, the first major theater that really embraces this is going to... It'll take some time, and they'll and you'll have to they'll have to do some R and D and fail a few times. But the first major theater here in this region or anywhere that embraces this idea will win the day. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I totally agree with that. It's so interesting. One of the things that was so great about the way that they set up for their podcast is that it took their audio people who are audio professionals maybe whatever like 45 minutes or an hour to set up equipment that they already own and use for the theater to to do this so it's like that they don't pay anybody to like you don't need to pay anybody like the act you don't need to get the actor or or pay for any of that they're already with you they already want like we we did henry four and you know and ed Giro and stacy keach they were so supportive of the they they were firm believers in in the idea of the show and they wanted every opportunity to tell people about why they loved it, why, what, what about the story motivated them to be in it, and uh, and just the in, the institution couldn't figure out a way to turn their positive energy into more content, into into something that people could engage with, which is really a shame. And that's just that's the easy one. That's the low hanging fruit. That's right. the nonfiction journalism take about why we're doing the show, right. which is not. It's low-hanging fruit because it's easy to do, <laughs> yeah. and it doesn't require any creativity. Yeah. They could have had someone hire a playwright to write oh a five-minute companion monologue and record that mm -hmm. and podcast that or film it and post the video. And it doesn't... It's... What is it? 400 bucks to commission somebody to write something? I yeah, mean, it's, it's just... Like nothing, it's yeah. really ridiculous. And, and the, you know, someone will one day say... Let's do this, and they will. They will really own the day. I really believe that. It's gonna be awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Let's make it us. Yeah. Well, that you know, connecting people and who all have a passion for creativity. Something I hope to be. I hope to be a conduit for people meeting each other. Why be a conduit? Be an influence. Well, okay. Well. well, that's fair. You know, I, I, yeah. Well, that's true. That's true. Yeah. There's plenty of time in the day, so I we can, I can do all of these things, and you clearly an example of someone who can do quite a lot in one day and make it work. So, because you also one of the things that you you mentioned the what how does it the National New Play Network, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, so that's one of my. So I'm on staff at the National New Play Network, <coughs> 
I also have a cold. I managed to do that in this particular 24-hour period. Um, I am the project director of the New Play Exchange, which is uh, a national, international, really, database of new plays. Uh, the idea is that the New Play Exchange will replace the submission model. Mm -hmm. Submissions are the technology by which we currently collect, connect plays and playwrights on one hand and producers on the other. We have this human, fallible, broken technology that nobody who participates in it or who uses it likes. Nobody. Playwrights can't stand how willy-nilly it is and how they have to keep track of all these things and they have to find opportunities and send their work out <clears throat> and pay submission fees and you know get an agent and all the things they have to do to supplicate themselves the very word submit is mm. just laden with you know pressure and awfulness for playwrights and theaters on the other hand are like shutting down why are we doing this we're not going to produce any of these plays this is not how we find the work most of the time 99.9 .9 times out of 100 that we're going to produce um, we dedicated a lot of effort to it and it just seems to be like an act of goodwill maybe but it's not generating goodwill <laughs> right. among the playwrights it's, so uh, you know meanwhile um, the literary managers and dramaturgs of those theaters are doing a lot of work reading a lot of plays that they've gotten by other means and trying to assess them and stay in touch with them and really focus they want to focus less on the cut and paste aspects of what they do mm -hmm. and the spreadsheeting and more on the actual relationships they have with artists more yeah. on writing a thoughtful email we're having a good conversation with somebody. Um, so the new play exchange is going to replace all of that. It becomes one place where every playwright who can speak English can upload a play. And one place that anyone who wants to find new scripts can go to look for them. Mm -hmm. It's as simple as that. And that's my gig. That's my jam. I've been mm -hmm. working on that <coughs> one way or another for something like... I don't, the number is like six years mm -hmm. or more, seven years. I started um, doing some pro bono consulting because I wanted something like this to exist right. yeah. for a nonprofit in Minneapolis called the Playwright Center. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, you know, then I wrote a big HowlRound article that got a lot of attention and um, uh, proposing something called the New Play Oracle, which was my awful attempt to sort of make technology seem more magical for mm -hmm. theater people I should have just I, I regret that it was too frufy it's not even me I'm not <laughs> that guy uh, and then um, NNPN came calling and said you know we've got this project and we'd love to have your your partnership on it and um, you know one thing led to another and I ended up in charge of the thing um, so it's been great I mean it's really in some ways the signature thing I've been building toward being able to lead this project my entire career, mm -hmm. having the technology knowledge that I have and the um, the experience doing agile product development. I'm a certified Scrum master, which is a, like a term from agile product development. Am I the only playwright in North America who is also a certified Scrum master? That's possible, <laughs> you know. Um, uh, is there anyone even listening to this podcast who knows what certified Scrum master means? Um, uh, you know, in any event, uh, I was the right guy at the right time for something that I hope is going to be pretty transformative for mm -hmm. the field. And 
really I just want to make it I don't I don't want to make it my new play exchange I want to make it the fields I mm -hmm. want to make it right. right for everyone other than me or you know ever for for others and so we've been doing a lot of beta testing and we have 500 users in the tool right now mm -hmm. um, playing around and we'll be launching I can't share the launch date mm -hmm. um, right now but we'll be launching very soon mm -hmm. and um, and it's exciting that is very definitely exciting. I was recently with, uh, well, I just volunteered to be a reader for Inkwell Theater's recent round of submissions. And that uh, the scale of that alone, because in Inkwell has a pretty specific aesthetic as well, so their sorting criteria are already pretty strongly in place. And even they got 500 plays. The O'Neill just closed its submissions. They got 1,300. And yeah. that's with a $35 entry fee. Yeah. I mean, obviously, they have the best game in town. They have the best yeah. reward in town, but um, it's really not—it's really not about quantity as much, I think, as much as it is quality. I yeah. I advocate um, for anyone who wants to do an, a, a submission process to set a limit not on the number of weeks you'll keep the submission window open, but to say we will take the first. X hundred plays to say I can reasonably review mm -hmm, mm -hmm. four hundred submissions. I have the staff or the people right. to you know reason evaluate four hundred, and then just take the first four hundred, open on this date, and close when you get four hundred. Mm -hmm. um, but even then, you'll set out ten criteria that people have to meet. You must be a Kentucky-based playwright. <laughs> the play must be a comedy. And then you'll get playwrights who say, well, oh, yeah. my mother's from Kentucky. <laughs> and I happen to think that um, terrorism is funny. <laughs> so this play works, right? I mean, and, and so it's that noise that we're trying to tune to out, down yeah. and filter out. Yeah. 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 And that's, uh, well, it was very, they were really great. Like, it was really great to be a part of it because they, they are very determined to read everything three times. So... And that's why it took so long to roll. They didn't think it would take over a year to sort through 500 plays, but that's definitely what happened. But we did, I feel like we did justice to everyone. And even that, we did justice to it in the sense that three different people read it. But if you caught us on the wrong day or like I was reading three plays a week and doing another job, like it's too easy <coughs> for something that's good or a good idea that isn't there yet to not have any communication with that person any afterward and to not be able to send a good enough feedback to a playwright who just needs a little bit. Well, you know, the other the other problem we're facing in the American theater is one that the new play exchange is not going to solve, which is there are about 15,000 playwrights mm. in America, each finishing one play a year on average, let's just say. And I think there are some who think they can write a play faster than that. I think they're wrong, but, you know. <laughs> um, Let's just say it's one play a year. So 15,000 new plays are entering the new play ecosystem every year. There are 1,500 world premieres mm -hmm. every year. So stop and let that sink in. Nine out of 10 plays written will never be produced. 90% of the plays that are written will never be produced. So that means you know, a lot of dogged insistence by people who make it to that production. Like, it means if you get a, a world premiere, you should, like, cool your jets for a decade and not expect another one. Like, <laughs> right. okay, I got my one. 
I'll wait till the 2020s and I'll try and get another one. Like, be happy if you get one. If yeah. you get one, be happy. And if you get, you know, if you're lucky enough to get, uh, you know, two or three or whatever, then you realize that you must have some skill. I mean, it's, of those nine out of ten that don't get produced, I'm not afraid to say many of them are horrible. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Horrible. Really, really, really bad. I've read for enough content to know. <laughs> yeah. And don't and they, they oughtn't be produced. It doesn't mean that they oughtn't be written. It mm-hmm. doesn't mean that they don't deserve um, attention and care and feedback. I mean that the writer's process is not about what ends up on stage. It mm-hmm. is a journey. It is not the destination of production. Um, but every play's journey um, needs to be suited to the material at hand. And mm-hmm. so right now, bad things get on stage and good things don't get on stage and. But I would like there to be slightly more opportunity than right. there is. I would like right. for it not to be nine out of ten, but maybe eight out of ten. Mm-hmm. That's just, it's a modest goal, right? Marginal that, utility increase, yeah. Yeah. So this is why that's exactly right. So this is why we have to also be working on cre- changing changing the technology for connecting plays and players, but also creating more opportunities. Mm-hmm. Players absolutely who are focused on creating opportunities for themselves and for others are heroes in my book. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, this is, I mean, thus the welders, right? Right. You know, yeah. make make possibility. Yeah, that's uh, that's a great way to put it. Um, and <laughs> I, I, I have a lot of dreams. Um, one of the dreams, because I come from the production side of things, and I, I routinely see um, organizations that uh, don't necessarily understand the importance of logistics on the input side. Like the stage managers all see it and stage managers all understand the importance of scheduling and availability and the utilization of scarce resources. But a lot of times theater organizations don't put enough <coughs> thought into the idea that efficiency matters. Like the way that theater is done these days is super labor intensive because if you don't have any money, you the, the solution is to have low pay and throw as many man hours as, at it as you can which is not efficient or optimal. Um, and so when it comes to creating opportunities for productions, I feel like there needs to be a partner organization, a partner group of people who are as enthusiastic about the production of plays and are freed from some of the, some of the being with only one theater. Like a lot of theater companies, like a lot of regional theaters, because of the, their history, they need to be a theater production company and they need to be a theater company. Like they need to manage the venue and they need to produce their own stuff. But those are actually radically different skill sets. And some and a lot, a lot of organizations, they don't nestle very well together. Mm-hmm. So I feel like there is space for someone who really only wants to produce theater, doesn't care about a particular theater, and just promiscuously produces as much theater as possible. It's sort of like the, the producing... Well, they have these people in New York. Yeah, right? I say New yeah. York, because of the way that rents work in New York, like it's almost impossible for a theater company to own right. a space. Right. So they these production companies exist in New York because of that economic reality, which isn't true in Houston, because, for example, in Houston, space is dirt cheap. So, right. like, whatever, they... You get into downtown in the 1960s and you're fine. Right. You don't have to right. work. That, right. that economic reality doesn't force you. And they, the Alley, I have to say, is a really good organization at this, in this respect because their shops are all in one place. Like if you're going to 
produce theater in one place and have all of those logistics together, have it all in one building. When you don't have it in one building, you're losing <laughs> the value provided by the model. So I would, yeah, I, I do think that there is the one way that we can help create more opportunity is by having some people spend a little bit more, spend, find that their way of in achieving creative input is by being like jujitsu kung fu masters of logistics. <laughs> Project managers, really, yeah, in my, in absolutely. my tech speak. Yeah, yeah yes. I know, it's true. There, there are, I mean, this is the secret genius, and it's not so secret. It's not at all a secret. The secret genius of the welders is Jojo Roof, mm. right? Who is, um, she is special. I don't know how to say it. I mean, at this point, I don't want to do anything that doesn't have Jojo involved. Mm. Uh, it's... Today's her birthday. Happy birthday, Jojo. <laughs> we bought her flowers and oh, we sent excellent. them to her office. Excellent. Um, she, I mean, we are all, we are very, mostly an organized bunch in and of ourselves. And we each have different lines of responsibility and organize our own work around those lines. But she is the engine and the taskmaster and the, the leader and the lots of things. Mm. Uh, and she is a born producer. She gets it at every level. She makes an artist feel confident that someone is leading and leading in a supportive way. She's creative. She's so... Can I cuss on this? Yeah, part? absolutely. She's so fucking smart. And, uh, and, um, and on top of all of that, like, charming, right? So, like, she's got the goods and she doesn't, like, make you feel stupid. Oh, yeah, she's that's like, great, yeah. You know... Um, yeah, so more JoJo's would really address this problem. <laughs> Sadly, there seems to only be one. Mm -hmm. uh, well, do you want to talk about the libraries a little bit? Because oh, it's such a cool idea. I really right like this. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's such a great idea. So, I'm. This is interesting. I'm gonna. I'm gonna talk without knowing what I'm gonna say. I am very skeptical right now about libraries. Mm. Part of this is because of the piece I'm working on for the welders right now. I and I'm going to quote my own piece which I probably shouldn't do but I don't you know libraries have become Temples to the selfishness of ideas. Mm. Most of what's in a library is wrong. Most of what's in the nonfiction section of a library is wrong. Mm. It's all old. By the time an idea is encoded in print, it's old. The latest thinking, which is the best thinking in most cases, is not in a library. <laughs> A library is a bunch of old ideas saying, me, 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 look at me, look at me, look at me. And, and, and the ideas are just there to be checked out and burned into people's brains by reading and then returned to the source where they can be burned into other people's brains. They're not where you go to learn anything new. They're where you go to learn what was. Mm -hmm. Even the fiction... These are the narratives of the past. They're the ways that someone thought about what happened 
or the way that someone thought a while ago. So, <clears throat> now I'm saying this, we're also sitting in my dining room, which is eight feet away from my library, right? <laughs> I've built a library in my house with a giant wall of oak shelves and granite and books that I inherited from my late great uncle who inherited them himself from a very famous um, lawyer named McDonald DeWitt, um, uh, you know, uh, who inherited them from his father, who was a, a, a descendant of like New York political royalty. <laughs> yes. And there, so like I get, and my, and then if you go one room behind in my study, there's bookcases everywhere, and there's books everywhere in my house. I have a bookshelf in my bedroom, for God's sake. <clears throat> my wife and I put took our 25 favorite books from our lifetime, put one on each table at our wedding reception, oh. and instead of having guests sign a guest book, they all inscribe the inside cover of each book. And so we now have those 25 books. We call it our wedding library in our bedroom, and we can read them and also read the inscriptions, right? So I love, I have loved books. I have learned how to make books. I apprenticed myself to a letterpress printer for four weeks, sleeping on the floor of his print shop so I could learn how to make books. I've just, I've been book crazed my entire life. The moment I got published was like a transformative experience for me. I was participating in this great thing. I used to work as a publisher. I was a subsidiary rights editor at a publisher in Baltimore. I was a, a, a work for Westview Press in, in Colorado. Like this has been my life. I am now massively suspicious of books and of libraries. Having said that, <laughs> I'm sitting beside a stack of four little free libraries, uh, which are these little boxes that you decorate. Um, they're made of, you know, sustainable, outdoor-friendly mm -hmm. materials, and you, you decorate them and put them in your front yard. You plant, you put in a post, you use a post hole digger, you put up a post and you put a, a box on it with a door, and you fill it with books, and you say to people in your neighborhood, take a book and leave a book. Mm -hmm. So I have just organized my neighborhood, um, or four families in my neighborhood, all on a two-block stretch of Normandy Drive in Silver Spring, uh, to install little free libraries. So there's one four doors that way, and one that's going to be in our house, and then two doors the other way, and then about a block past that. And uh, we're going to be, in a week and a half, we're all getting together and on a Saturday and assembling them and painting them and putting them in. So my hope is that it teaches my son, who is four, um, to hold your ideas loosely, mm. to let them go, to put them where other people can pick them up, and um, to not think of a library as a fixed place where all the great ideas assemble, but as a place where things change and new ideas come and new ideas go, new stories come and new stories go, and to help think of um, a library as a fluid place and help us all think of our minds as fluid places. I don't think we are healthy when we get fixed on one idea. Mm -hmm. I think it's well documented that we believe the things we believe because they make us feel good, mm -hmm. not because they're true. They may be true, 
but we believe what we feel like believing. We believe what we want to believe. I want us to believe what is true only. I don't do that. I'm not claiming right. to have figured right. that out at all. <laughs> oh my gosh, no. That's an ideal to live up to. Mm -hmm. And so I want to say to my son, and he has trouble with this idea because he's four, and he's <laughs> like, that's my book. <laughs> right. you know, we, 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 there's a little free library about eight or ten blocks from here in a little park. And we, or actually there's two of them side by side, and we stumbled on them, and um, he was like, oh, Daddy, I want that book. And my wife and I said, you can take it, but we have to bring it back here or bring one of your books back here in a couple of days. Uh, and he couldn't handle that. Mm -hmm. and so we didn't let him take the mm -hmm. book. Actually, I think we did let him, I think he did agree eventually to, you know, to do it, to try it and see if it would be okay. And we did take a book of his that he had a duplicate of back there. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so, you know, with a, with a four-year-old, you do your best. Right. <laughs> but I want, yeah, I want him to see um, books coming and going. I mean, the neighbors that we're doing this with um, are close. They're friends. They're really good friends. And uh, in particular, one of the households, uh, right now there's four or five of, of my, I'm doing air quotes now <laughs> for the benefit of radio, my books in their house. And I think one or two of their books in our house because... Uh, because that's how it should work, yeah. right? That's how yeah. that's how ideas should move, and I I get very very passionate about, as you can see yeah. or hear, I get very passionate about what I think. But that is that makes me suspicious of myself when I really believe something. It might be wrong. I might only be believing it because it's making me feel good to say all this. So mm -hmm. I wish more people were skeptical of themselves, right? You don't know. You don't fucking know a thing. You think you do. You think you're certain. But please, like, I embrace doubt. Mm -hmm. The more doubt we would have, the, think about how our politics would change. Think about we might listen to each other a little bit better. And I'm not, I'm as liberal as it comes, right? I'm radically liberal in every, in everything, every, every possible, you know, <laughs> I grew up with a gay father in a mixed religious household and a, you know, uh, whatever. I come from, I come from diversity and mm -hmm. I embrace it and, 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 um, I still, so I'm not saying that the Koch brothers, we should be listening to the Koch brothers, right. and, but I'm just, I'm, I'm just saying that we should be listening and, yeah. um, and challenging what we think and, you know, Doing experiments to see if we're right, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because maybe we're not. There's a who is it? I want to say it's somebody like Freakonomics or somebody like that. Yeah, with really encouraging thinking like that. But it might also be like whatever Radiolab. But they talk to some people. They talk to gamblers, and particularly not not gamblers, but poker players, people for whom uncertainty is an essential part of the business that they engage in. And they all talk about the most important thing, like you have an ideal, your ideal is to make enough money to survive, that's your job, but that the process is more important than a specific result. And that getting to the result is about trusting the process. Mm. And that's what I, when, when, you, when you speak mm. so passionately about that, that's what I hear about doubt. <coughs> doubt is a healthy suspicion 
of the limits of knowability, particularly your own. And that by the process, trusting a process of interrogation, which includes contact with ideas that you're not familiar with or don't necessarily agree with right off the bat, a, a regular dialogue of possibly curated content, which is what I love about these these little free libraries because library, the big problem that I have with libraries is constant overchoice problem. There's just like, it's okay, that's great. There's a, there's a lot of books there. I have no idea what I'm looking for yeah, yeah, whatsoever. Yeah, yeah. But if I know, especially if I know the person and like, oh, they decided to put that or somebody decided that it was worth putting that book there. What the hell? I mean, th this is going to teach me about my neighbor's minds, right? Mm -hmm. These are the things that they have considered. Now, it may be that they put in their reject books. Sure. Right? The, but but somebody else's reject is my is my need to find that book. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, there is. I, I like everything you just said. I like everything you just said. I feel like um, doubt for me, I'm not talking about the kind of paralyzing, crippling doubt where your your soul is at risk. Mm -hmm. I'm just talking about um, not, not, not gullibility. Mm -hmm. I mean, right now we have absolute quack doctors like Dr. Oz mm -hmm. and... Um, those folks telling us what pills we should be taking for this, that, and the other thing. And there's just no evidence for what they say. We have people spending a lot of money on um, homeopathy, which is just valueless, except for the people who own homeopathy companies. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> uh, and I don't, I, I'm sorry. Like, I'm sorry to have to say that to people, anyone listening who takes a silicocinum for the flu, go on and keep doing it. What the hell? You know, like, you're not hurting me, hmm. um, but there's no demonstrable proof that it works. None. <laughs> zero. Right. Zero. If it works, it works by the placebo effect, which I have just destroyed yeah. by telling you it doesn't actually work. <laughs> so I'm sorry, but um, I just, so things like that we would be saving ourselves from if we would be less gullible, less, you know, the whole Mike Daisy controversy. Mm -hmm. Um, it never fucking bothered me, right? Yeah. Because I never <laughs> believed him from the from the get go. I never once imagined he actually talked to a thirteen year old Chinese girl, and and in fact she was only sixteen. I don't even remember. I don't care what the details are. He spun a story. I valued the story. I value Mike Daisy, and I didn't need it to have a truth value of one. Right, right. I didn't. I needed it to have a story value of one. I didn't care about the truth value. If I suppose if I'd stopped to think about it, if someone had asked me, Gwydion, do you believe that the girl he spoke with was actually a thirteen-year-old um, factory worker or not?" I would have said, "Probably," but it wouldn't have mattered to me, and it didn't matter to me when it turned out it was not the case. It was adding that detail in because it was just a story. Sto all stories are lies. All stories are lies. I'm not the first person to say that, but it is, it, you know, it, it's... Um, worth it's, repeating. It's worth sure. repeating. Yeah. All stories are lies. And and yet we want to believe them so badly. We want so badly to believe them. Um, especially when they're told well. Mm. I mean, and now, and now we live in a culture... This is, I'm really verging on spoiling my Welder's piece, which no one, like about four people have seen the early draft of. We live 
surrounded by more stories than at any other time in human history. Our brains were developed evolutionarily to only encounter information that was spoken to us. Mm. For a hundred thousand years of our brains being like this, the only way you learned a piece of information other than by figuring it out yourself was someone telling it to you. Ideas entered your mind via the voice. Print fucked that up hard, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. A mistake got propagated worse in print than it ever did before. Um, ideas also good ideas get propagated faster as well. But um, there's something about when 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 you transmit an idea to, to me via voice, uh, I mishear things and I hear what I want to hear, and my brain is actually actively working and. St- filing data as it comes in and misfiling data and hearing so there's kind of variation happening it's repetition with variation it's the very essence of life it's Mm. evolution right when you put your idea down into writing it's a fixed immobile thing everyone who encounters your idea in writing is encountering the very same thing but if you tell me and then i tell someone else what I'm telling someone else is different. Mm-hmm. The idea doesn't propagate evenly. It propagates fluidly. So we're now living in a world where there are, th- duh, thousands of channels of content available to us, thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions at all times. We can't choose. We can't select between them. We can't. It's like when you go to a menu at a really fancy restaurant, there are seven things on the menu and they're all lovingly described and they, a lot of care and thought has been put into them. Uh, and then you go to a diner for breakfast the next morning and it's one of these nine page menus with pictures of everything and you can get every kind of omelet known to man and you know the, the restaurant is not an expert at any of this stuff, right? We're living, we're living in a diner. We're eating in a diner all the time. Because there's in that diner, the chef has a special fondness for, say, the chicken Kiev and actually puts a lot of love just into that. When someone orders the chicken Kiev, the chef is like, ooh, I get to do a Kiev and like braises the ham extra long or whatever it is, you know, does something extra special and puts love into it. Most of it is just slap it up and get it out fast. We're living in a diner. We're not living in a fancy restaurant now. This, our brains were meant to absorb much less information in a whole different way, much more slowly. So what's going to happen to our minds and how, how are we going to create a culture in this environment? And I, So far, we're not succeeding. <laughs> right, we're yeah. not really doing very well. So maybe my little free libraries will help us all to hold our ideas loosely myself included really big old mirror imagine one right here and me looking at it because i i do this as much as anyone else i'm not exempt i have my illusions that i cling to i have my myths that i propagate for no good reason other than i like to Uh, i want to be as free of this as i want us all to be so you know this is not like me lecturing it's me like ranting from a personal place That seems like a pretty good note to end on then. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for your time. Is there anything that you want me to put in the show notes or talk to people about? 
mm. like the other than possibly the the welders information session on November tenth after not enough lifetimes, which is playing at the Atlas, I believe. Atlas Performing Arts Center, not enough lifetimes. Previews October twenty ninth. Um, closes November fifteenth. It's an awesome hip hop inspired um, play. Uh, really killer cast, and it's poetic. Kellyanne Jennings is an absolutely poetic, beautiful, beautiful writer, and her cast is so genuine, and they've mm. they've really matured into these roles in, in an impressive way. And um, I I hope people will come. I I mean, actually, I think people are already. I think the response is the early response has been huge. So. Um, that's really great. Um, but I, I, so if any of that touches your heart, legacy, intergenerational conflict, uh, white people trying to fathom hip hop, uh, hip hop artists trying to be fathomed, you know, <laughs> there's a lot, there's a lot of meat there. And, um, and so, so come, please come and uh, say hi if you do, if I'm there. All right. Oh, that's good. Thanks again. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, that was awesome. That was awesome. That was pretty good. <laughs> I tend to say crazy things when I'm in, in podcast interview mode. I'm